Well, hey, folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. And uh, this is your host, Lisa Anderson, with you with a little preview of what is coming up for later. We have our inbox where a listener is asking, is it normal to be annoyed with your boyfriend? Well, uh, she and her boyfriend have been together for two years, and a lot of people have told her that these annoyances are just going to get worse when she gets married. So how does she handle that? Well, one of our counselors will weigh in. And then for our culture segment, Chase Repligal is here to discuss some of the content from his book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Great discussion with him. Um, And ladies, you listen in too, because quite frankly, I found that uh, I can trend towards some of these things. So this isn't just about the guys. Okay, here we are for our roundtable. We have got Chris, John, and Kristen here. Hey, y'all. Hello. 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 Um, We're going to have a conversation today on being a planner versus being spontaneous. And this is where I get a little prideful because (laughs) I feel like I am just the perfect mix of both. <laughs> okay, many of you know it from like if you've taken the Myers Briggs uh, personality assessment. That final letter, you're either a P or a J, and uh, the P determines how spontaneous you are. That's the most spontaneous mm. end of the spectrum, and then the J is the more agenda-driven planner, mm. um, focused uh, list maker, and whatnot. So. Um, so we're going to have a fun conversation on this. And I actually, oh, I'm saying that because I actually come right down the middle on that assessment. Nice. So <laughs> I feel like moderately prideful about it. I'm just going to say I feel like I'm very, very well balanced. So um, but let's talk about you all. Do you feel you trend more towards being a planner or being a spontaneous person? Or if someone's going to have to have some qualifiers, I'm going to probably fight you on this, but I will let you say it. Okay. So (laughs) does it vary in various circumstances? John, you go first. I've already bought my 2023 planner and I may be using it already. How do you use a planner for a year that's not even, oh, you mean you're you're projecting things, putting things. Kind of. It's more (laughs) along the lines of that it actually started in July of 2022 is when the planner starts and goes through 2023. So it's like a warm up. I'm very much a day-by-day planner. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily planning things six months in advance, but when it comes to day-to-day life, I definitely need a to-do list without question. If I don't have a to-do list of some kind, I feel as if my life is disorganized and I'm thinking, oh, no. Where is the structure? Where are the boundaries? <laughs> yeah, I'm acting all judgy, but I'm exactly like that. And in fact, I am so grandma. I probably have seven different apps that allow me to manage various <laughs> tasks in my life. And I'm all about the technology. But I love my notepad of paper sitting mm-hmm. on my desk where I physically write things and cross them off because I feel oh, yes. so accomplished from just <laughs> having my little cross off list and post-its. Love them. Mm-hmm. Kristen, what about you? I think I overplan. The important things, and I underperform them, and then I'm super spontaneous <laughs> with fun things because my friends invite me, and I'm like, that does seem better than doing my laundry. Oh, okay. yeah, I'll join. <laughs> so it's probably unhealthy, but so then what? The laundry never gets crossed off the list, and you just have to buy new clothes, or what? <laughs> just <laughs> you have to stay just stacked up and clean for too long. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. How about you, Chris? Yeah, I love being spontaneous. I've there's definitely structure to parts of my day, but I would probably say about 75% spontaneity. Everything else is 
planned out. <laughs> okay. Okay. 75 to 25. That's not bad yeah. either. Okay. So how now, okay, here's a question that I'm just going to put out there, which I know either side is going to be offended by. <laughs> I feel like we trend towards stereotypes in mm-hmm. these areas. So, and they are... Um, spontaneous people are irresponsible and planners <laughs> are boring. <laughs> so how do you guys resonate with that? I mean, do you feel like have you felt the weight of that wrath against you at times or the judginess of others? There is one caveat to the planners seem boring. <laughs> and by the way, I will tell you this. When I gave a senior presentation in college, my um, broadcasting professors, because I was a media major, they said, hey, just so you know, when you apply to jobs, one of the things you're going to have to overcome is you don't leap out at people. So <laughs> I definitely fit the stereotype. But one one little caveat I will give is we don't have very boring minds, at least from our perspective, because okay. we are thinking about so much all the time. So life may seem boring to others on the outside, but on the inside, we just kind of live in imaginary land, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That reminds me of my friend um, Juliana, who says on the Myers Briggs, she's I believe an ISTJ, which she has fully described as the most boring personality profile oh, no. that there is. It's actually called the Inspector, and she's like, "Who wants to be that? That's not like there's no fun in that. There's no all we do is like we're loyal and we just like are we show up for things and we just do you know the right thing and whatever." So I think that's pretty hilarious. Okay, what about your stereotype? types, Kristen? I think I have really gracious friends, which helps a lot. I think I get annoyed with myself about my irresponsibility. Like, Kristen, your laundry has been clean Mm -hmm. and on your bed for two weeks. You haven't made any time for that. What is wrong? So I feel like I tend to put that on myself more than my other people around me or if they do i don't i don't know okay so you're just sleeping on your bed with clean <laughs> no i on move it? it from the bed to the chair oh, and because then back i to hope the bed? i hope that if it's on the bed then when i get there i'm like oh i have to put it away and otherwise i have to sleep and then i'm like oh this chair is perfect yeah. for holding my clothes this is just an example from yeah, last now week, that's unfortunately. Just, now we have inefficiency <laughs> issues so we're, we can't even go there okay yeah. chris what about you yeah, I've I've definitely had that. One of the ways that I've found to overcome it is kind of carving out planning time where X amount of time is committed to adulting and uh, <laughs> like Saturdays are get everything done days. And then like uh, right when I get home from work, a lot of the time will be take care of this and that. So the spontaneity is definitely there throughout the entire day. And there's definitely been some times that I've dropped the ball on things that I shouldn't have. But at the same time, I've I find a medium in there somewhere. <laughs> okay. So what kind of things do you guys find that you really have to plan for? Otherwise you're, you notice like you're going to have some mental health issues. Like it's going to get, it's going to start getting super stressful for you or whatever. Like you feel like you have to have control. Is it more like schedule things? Is it more important things in your life? Is it more, and is there anything where trying to be spontaneous or, in John's case, spontaneous people impressing this upon him <laughs> derail your well-laid plans. I definitely would say I would need at least three days' notice if I'm going to be <laughs> <laughs> invited to just about anything. That's there- as spontaneous as you get? Y- okay. Most of the time. Okay. <laughs> Not, 98% of the time, I need at least 
give me three days notice and I will probably be okay. okay. If it's a work <laughs> assignment, I'm much more willing to go there and just say, all right, I'll do it. If it's um, really just hot off the press and has to get done today. But if it's a fun get together with friends, oh man, I, I was telling these guys yesterday <laughs> when we were discussing this, I feel so bad just the, the amount of times that I have turned down party invitations because, hey, we're having this get together tomorrow and it's going to be really fun. Would you be willing to go? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, oh, I've scheduled reading time for that <laughs> evening, or or reading no, time, a, or no, there's a uh, there's a sports event I really want to watch. So, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's I mean that is that's good insight. And so, friends of John, take note because give him enough time. It's nothing I, personal, guys. You, you clearly are not going to go with Kristen going on an overnight airport trip to pick up a friend, and then she's all laid out today. She can't even like stay awake. So, well, and I, I can jump in on that with John because one of the times that I really enjoy to plan is for other people to make sure that things go well. And it took me two to three weeks to pin down a surprise birthday party for John. True story. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, "Hey, man, what are you doing this week?" And he's, "Oh, man." I'm I'm really busy. I can't really do anything. And the next weekend, hey, man, I was hoping to do something like maybe Friday after work. What are you doing? Oh, I really can't. I have something that I need to do. While in the background, I'm texting everybody like, oh, I'm sorry. We can't do it quite yet. So, yeah, just it was hilarious that <laughs> that we were able to meet our spontaneity and uh, planning, but have yeah. it be the opposite, basically. To we had to meet each other in that area. Yeah. Okay. So, Chris, to that point, as a uber spontaneous person, what do you? Is there anything that you get angsty about if it's not planned or you don't know about it in advance? Yeah. Lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lunch. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No. It, there's definitely times that I will notice anxiety creeping in, especially with work things in specific. I I really enjoy margin so that I can have that time to be spontaneous and live life for myself. Mm -hmm. So I I definitely have to plan those kinds of periods. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good. I do remember when there was a summer here that some friends and I had planned a camping trip. Well, then we ran up against fire bans, and it turned out that if we were going to go camping, we couldn't have a fire. And I'm like, what is the point, literally? Because <laughs> we were, we were um, tent camping, you know, oh, so it's not it. like we even like literally for warmth, we needed a fire. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like, that is clearly not going to work. So of course we had warmth in our heads. So we just got online and booked tickets to Vegas and left that night and did that instead. And <laughs> it was like super spontaneous, that yeah. kind of thing. The time was already planned out for camping. I didn't have to worry about booking extra time. Mm. It was just pivoting on the type of plan. That I can be very spontaneous on. Sometimes mm. more important things or more work-related things are a little harder maybe to go to. But mm. I don't know, Kristen, how about you? What are the types of things that you feel like you really want to make sure you have a plan for? Really just meals outside <laughs> of that. <laughs> Like if I if I skirt my responsibilities because I want to go hang out with people and I don't get my grocery shopping done, yeah, then I don't have food to eat for the week. And I do have a pretty busy outside of work life. Mm -hmm. So if I don't shop on like the two days I have free time to do that, then I'm kind of scrambling the rest of the week. And that is not good for my budget or for my sanity. So that's really that's really it. And then if I just know that I'll be able to see my friends and the people I love throughout the week, then I'm good to go. Okay, nice. so do any of you guys have long-term goals? Because I feel like John can't, because if he can't put them in his this year's planner, he can't do it. 
Chris is just making the next day's lunch, so he's yes. pretty much done, you know, and trying to figure out. And Kristen, we don't know. She's just waiting for other people to suggest things. So her long-term goals will come from others, possibly. But I don't know. How do you guys do that, like the long-term versus the short-term? Yeah, I have to get on, I would say, a roll mm-hmm. before I can start yeah. to say that, yes, I want to commit to this as a long-term goal. One example that um, you and I have talked about is – a few years ago, my roommate got me into hiking the big mountains out here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And after I did about five of them, I thought to myself, wow, I want to do more than 50 of these mm, because wow. they are so fun and so adventurous. But when it comes to long-term goals, as long as I can get momentum early and have the confidence to say, yes, I will mm-hmm. commit to this, mm-hmm. then it's much easier for me to stick with it versus if I set an overly ambitious goal and then all of a sudden I start to lose momentum, then I get discouraged. Mm-hmm. And then you just set up more reading time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. How about either of you? Mm, I have a really unique bucket list, um, and it's something that I want to accomplish before I die. But I have never planned to cross any of the things off of them. The opportunities just come, so there's that. I have long-term goals, and then they just happen. But then for career and, like, personal life, I've always known I'm since high school what I wanted to do long, long-term, and so it's just kind of making decisions along the way that will prepare me for that. Yeah, John, I really like you saying that you have to get on a roll to start something because a lot of the times um, it is really disappointing when you start to plan something and it doesn't exactly pan out. So I feel that that is actually where a lot of my spontaneity comes from is not so much goals, but having a filter of kind of this is my end goal of what I want and how can I maneuver through these things that are happening in my life right now Mm -hmm. to end up getting to that goal to where it's kind of like walking through like stones in a river that you don't necessarily know the next rock you're going to hop to, but you know, you're going to get to the other side. Hmm. Yeah. So how what does this look like in operating, whether within your family, within your friends groups, when you're kind of bumping up against people who maybe trend towards different strengths? So <laughs> the planners, your best friends are all spontaneous and, you know, clearly, you know, that's going to affect the way that you approach them or the way that you can do things together. How do you reconcile that? <laughs> I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine a while ago, Pastor Ken Harmon, who we had on the show not too long Mm -hmm. ago, and he was just kind of outlining the differences between him and his wife, and it was so funny. (laughs) He said, I'm the type of personality that I get in my car and I say, I want to go to Mount Rushmore this weekend, and I'll get in the car and drive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And his wife is the type who prefers to go, wait a minute, how much is that going to cost? How Mm -hmm. much are hotel fees going to be? How much do we need to spend on gas? So Ken is one of those kind of guys that I've learned because he's very good at being spontaneous. Um, He's also very funny. And I have found that many times some of the more spontaneous people in my life are very funny. So I think learning to appreciate their humor and just kind of the ways that they naturally seem to bring fun to life is a way that I've learned to just roll with the punches when they come and say, hey, let's go do this fun thing. So Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I feel my favorite way to support planners is I know how much stress it puts me under to be trying to hit everything on the itinerary. So I always do the best that I can just to support them to where 
I end up almost getting to the point that I'm over controlling myself and I'm like, all right, so this is where I need to be when the next thing happens. I'm going to wait here until that thing happens kind of just so that I'm never a variable in the planner's uh, equation. (laughs) I think that as long as I trust the person who has the plan, I'm content to go along with it. If I have a free day and I have room in my budget for whatever they have going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes when I don't have a free day or I'm trying to figure out how it's going to work around other things I already have planned. Sometimes that can get a little bit dicey maybe too extreme of a word, but awkward in conversations <laughs> of like, I want to join, but I'm not sure if I can afford this or I have to be back by this time. And I know that's going to cut your plan short if I end up coming. So again, like I said earlier, I have really gracious friends, so I feel like we're always able to work it out. But it is interesting in the conversation beforehand. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's funny. I know I went to um, Disney World with a friend back in the day and it was around it was before Christmas and they were having this thing at Epcot where it was like storytellers where each of the lands had different people act out like Christmas traditions from those cultures. Mm -hmm. And there was a schedule of when they would occur. And so it was kind of like my version of John's 14ers. Once I'd done a a few of them, I'm like, well, now I need to do all of them or it will not have been complete. (laughs) So my poor friend, who actually is a super planner, but literally didn't care about going to these things. I was like, "Um, oh, no, we have not yet done Italy, China and Morocco. (laughs) So we need to stay out here till 1 a.m. to make sure that we hit all of these. And she was just like, Lisa, this is killing me. This is literally killing me. Because, again, I'm like, that's kind of like me being the foil to what Chris is talking about of just like, now we're like super scheduled. Now everything else that was a possibility is no longer because I have to get to China to hear their story. Exactly. That's how it's going to happen. So last question. Um, What do you guys feel about like, where does trusting God come into this equation? Because I think we can kind of err on either side of like spontaneous people can kind of just ignore God. And then planners can sometimes get ahead of God and try to over plan and not trust God and allow God to work. And so what does it look like for you to bring God and faith and your trust of him into the equation when it comes to short term goals, long term goals and everything in between? Yeah, one of the biggest ways that I see being spontaneous is um, I honestly just live it by faith. And that's the way that I see it is that I've had a lot of plans fall through and a few disappointments in life. And that's a part of the other reason why I feel that I live as spontaneous as as I do. And a lot of that is just kind of giving it to God of being like, well, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I trust you where I'm at. I think a big thing is learning to be more grateful with what he's given Mm -hmm. me. There's been a lot of times in the past where it was hard for me to enjoy the moment just because I was thinking about something out in the future. But as I've gained life experience, I look back on college and think about just the amazing friendships that I had. And some are still going today. Some that I was rooming with or people that I became good friends with, we still keep in touch. We were all together in that season for that time, and it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. But now we've gone different directions, and many of us are doing well. Some of us have had a lot of struggles and such, but we don't have that time back. Mm -hmm. So it was important to enjoy it when I had it then. And now I look back on ways that God has provided for me that have led me to where I am today, and I have so many amazing blessings now. And 
No matter how much I plan, ultimately I have to submit my plans to God because he's blessed me in more ways than I could have imagined or more ways that I could have tried to come up with on my own. So when I recount his faithfulness and also just mm-hmm. learn to be content with what I have now, it really just helps me to realize that the future is in his hands and I don't have to worry about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, John, I think the phrase you used yesterday was the blessing of contentment, Mm -hmm. which was really, really good. For me, I think I've been learning a lot about Sabbath, and I have a tendency when I'm over planning and trying to be really productive and catch up on all the things, I can make an idol out of productivity. Mm -hmm. And so I've been trying to rest better, which means I typically have to say no to more <laughs> more suggestions from my friends and I have to work harder throughout the week to get the things done I need to. Um, there's that. I'm not sure how much that ties in. But um, as far as trusting God, it has been really evident through all the doors that he's closed and all the doors that he's opened mm. that he really does work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And as he's taught me over the past two years, I really can trust him. And so even when all of my plans that I thought were good and from his hand Mm -hmm. fall totally flat, um, when I truly dwell on the truth, the truths of scripture, I'm able to take heart and remember, yeah, God's faithfulness and his kindness and um, that whatever the circumstances were, I've never stopped being his child. So that's really helpful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's so true. I think we often look at planning and and being spontaneous as being almost like personality traits, but I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunity for both ends to grow Mm -hmm. towards the other side as well. And I think that's super helpful um, for us to remember that, yeah, planners probably can benefit from um, stretching themselves by choosing to drop everything and maybe go and try something that's being suggested. And spontaneous people benefit from the discipline that comes Mm -hmm. with planning. Mm -hmm. And so there's good growth on either sides. I'm reminded of a very, you know, common verse that a lot of us use a lot, Proverbs 16, 9, uh, that says, the mind of a person plans his way, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. Mm -hmm. And so it's a good balance of like when you bring God into the equation, we know that, yes, it's very good to have um, order and discipline and to be like, yeah, let's be thoughtful about these things, but know that ultimately the Lord is in control. Yeah. So you guys, thank you so much for these great thoughts. This is really helpful. Oh, thank, yeah, you. thank you. So Thanks, much. Lisa. California driving had to get out. Distance got me wondering where you are right now. One-way conversations got me worn down. Pouring out my heart with you and speak a sound
right, everyone. Well, we are here for this week's culture segment, and uh, I've got a great interview for you today. And heads up to the men who are listening, because this one is for you. And as we often do, we always say, okay, ladies, you can still listen in because you're going to learn something too. Um, But I have got Chase Repligal on the line here for an interview today. Hey, Chase. Hey, it's great to be with you. So uh, thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, for those of you who don't know, um, Chase is pastor of Bent Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. He is really a, um, he's an author. He's a speaker, obviously a pastor. He hosts a a podcast, uh, the Pastor Writer Podcast. That sounds fascinating. Uh, Married with two kids and really has been featured in a lot of places, including, my goodness, Good Morning America. What in the world? What were you doing there? Uh, I actually had the chance to go out there this summer and talk uh, for Father's Day in their Faith Friday segment and uh, had a great time talking about the value of fatherhood and how to bear greater responsibility as men. Well, that's that's amazing. That is awesome. Um, also, Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, a lot of folks that we keep up with as well. And so today we're going to talk around themes uh, from Chase's book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And this isn't a long book, guys, so I think Chase is just going to lay it out for you and you do... You do this, and there's you're going gonna... to... There's an audiobook version. I always let the guys know. It's oh. an audio. You can just listen along. Good. Okay. So either way, they can be winning in this space if they just know how to access this. Okay. Always great to know. Um, well, I want to jump right in because this is uh, a lot of great content here, and we're going to actually walk through and give a brief overview um, of these five instincts, as you call them. And I thought it was so fun just to read through them because this isn't something, I mean, it was like every time you laid one out, I was like, oh yeah, you know, okay. (laughs) And I know maybe that sounds disingenuous coming from a female, but I was like, oh yeah, not that I was thinking of specific guys who need to hear this, but (laughs) don't we all? So, um, and again, women, you know, really kind of some of this can apply to all of us. So again, listen in. I want to start out with the first instinct that you mentioned being sarcasm, um, which I, I mean, I think that this can resonate with a lot of men out there because you're saying it's pretty common among them. And why? I mean, you know, women who are interested in men. I mean, when we look at dating profiles, isn't it always humor that women are looking for? What's wrong, Chase, with sarcasm? Sure. Well, good place to start. I always like to to begin, though, by pointing out that when we talk about these instincts, these are not necessarily sins or expectations. I'm not describing these as the five things men should avoid, nor are they the five expectations. You sort of have to have these things to qualify as a man. Uh, All five of them, as we're going to talk about them, are really neutral things. But C.S. Lewis uses the definition for instinct as behavior, as if from knowledge. So in other words, this is true for men and women. We have ways of behaving that seem to us obvious, that seem common sense, when in reality, we probably never sit down to think about why we're behaving the way we do, why we're thinking the way that we do. And so these five instincts we're going to talk about are really those types of things, neutral things, that if overindulged or blindly indulged can actually lead us to really destructive places. And our job as men, particularly as believers, is to mature these things into a a better instinct. So sarcasm, I use the story of Cain from the Bible. Hmm. Uh, Cain has, it's a fascinating story, and anybody who's read this story knows the big question is, why does God reject Cain's sacrifice and accept his brother Abel? And the thing that struck me about that story is God actually comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain and says, I see you're frustrated. Don't you realize sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you? 
Payne has this remarkable opportunity to take that question all of us want to better understand about the passage and turn and ask it of God. Why did you reject my sacrifice? And Cain could learn about how to better worship God. But that's not what Cain does. He doesn't respond to God. Instead, he rises up and murders his brother Abel. When God comes down a second time and initiates another conversation and says, where is your brother Abel? Cain says to him, am I my brother's keeper? And you can hear this bit of sarcasm. There's certainly nothing wrong with the sarcastic joke. There's nothing wrong with humor, as you say. But I think we all know men, and perhaps even times in our own life, where we can use humor, we can use sarcasm as a way of avoiding things, as a way of never taking anything seriously, turning everything into a joke, laughing it off so we don't have to bear responsibility for it. And so one of these great instincts that we have to be on the lookout for as men is, am I able to recognize God challenging me, offering me a divine lesson, or do I find myself sort of laughing everything off, making everything a joke so that I don't have to deal with it and ending up stuck in a kind of perpetual immaturity. Yeah, I think it's good. In the in the book, you refer to it as a cover for something far more complex. And then, like you said, a tactic of avoidance, sometimes a way of speaking without having to speak, acting without the risk of action. I thought that was so good. And uh, And to illustrate the point that, yes, this is also for women, I actually had a former boyfriend confront me on my use of sarcasm um, in in the sense that I would use it. I mean, first of all, I used it very flippantly, like as a way of joking about stuff. And sometimes it would um, trend towards even poking fun at people. But specifically, more to um, I would use sarcasm to try to address something quite serious. And so I would hide it somewhere within a joke and then hope that that person would actually get that I was trying to be serious about something. And I'm I'm like how passive aggressive is that? I mean, how what a what a nutty way of of doing that, and certainly an immature way of doing that. So it was a good word. I appreciated it. Well, this idea of hiding it—it's actually uh, some psychologists think that the use of sarcasm is actually a developmental milestone in children. So I have a couple of young kids, and if I say to my my uh, daughter as a toddler, you know, did you eat the cookies when I told you not to? She may just straight up lie and say no, even though I could see the chocolate still in her mouth. But as the kid develops, they become a little more shrewd about that deception. And they may say something like, well, what, which cookie? You know, what cookies? Uh, that sarcasm creeps in as actually a way of us being more shrewd. Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, hid in bushes. But by the time Cain begins to sin, all of a sudden he uses this sarcasm as a cover, uh, to use your word, right, to hide mm-hmm. what his real motive the real instinct at work within him is. Yeah. Well, and before we move on, I do want to say that another great point that you make about this is that you talk about the um, the the pains, you refer to two pains, and you say actually virtues, and sometimes they can be uh, referred to as pains, of real manhood, you describe them as humility and meekness, which might be seen as kind of the um, opposites in some ways of using sarcasm, and that men will have an instinct for sarcasm, but a need for humility and meekness. And I think that's wisdom to go after that. Yeah, for each of the instincts, I try to offer an intentional practice that you can use to check that instinct. So if you find yourself struggling to take things seriously, then I define humility as self-suspicion, a moment of pause in situations to say, could I be wrong? Could God be trying to teach me something here? And then I unpack meekness as the idea of, of restraint or inner strength, that you actually have the ability to control your reactions, which is the thing Cain can't do. He murders his brother as this kind of reactive impulse to being th- questioned. 
Uh, do I have the ability through meekness to take a blow without feeling the need to punch back? Do I have a kind of inner strength that will allow me to entertain the possibility that I might be wrong? Those really become the ways of cracking the door to growth and maturity, to recognizing there's still more things for me to learn and a God willing to teach them if I can humble myself to receive it. Yeah. I do want to mention, because you alluded to it in referencing Cain, that each of the five instincts, you have a biblical character that kind of illustrates that and backs it up. So those are kind of fun to read through and and ponder over as well. All right. I want to jump into adventure because all of the guys just let out a collective gasp of like, oh, Chase, don't talk about this. Don't go over. Don't don't cut into my, you know, guy time or into my, you know, trekking or climbing experience or backwoods wilderness or whatever. Um, Talk to us about chasing adventure and how it is a good thing for men, but what are some of the things that have to be kept in check? Yeah, well, it's important to remember here, these instincts aren't all sinful, right? So adventure is not necessarily wrong. I just got back from a pheasant hunting trip in South Dakota in the brutal cold, call it an adventure if you're into that sort of a thing. I don't think it's sinful to to go on an adventure. But uh, I use the story of Samson to help men recognize that oftentimes we can search for things through adventure that adventure doesn't always provide. And in Samson's case, I think that uh, if you read his story well, you recognize each of the narratives in Samson's life as a kind of adventure. He sees something down in Philistia, this land of his enemies. He ventures down into it. He finds himself in danger, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. He delivers himself in that moment. And then instead of in each moment recognizing God by this divine strength that delivered him, Samson turns it in one case into a drunken pun that he gambles over, and another case a pun in which he brags about himself. You read the story, and Samson seems adventure after adventure, not to be more enlightened, more himself, more heroic. He actually seems less discerning, less aware of God, less aware of the story God was trying to work within his life. And so I think adventure is one of the things as men we have to be on uh, the lookout for. We can actually begin to lose our commitment to the things in life, relationships and place and faith, in this kind of adventurous pursuit for a better self. And what Samson's story warns us about is oftentimes that pursuit for, for meaning through adventure can actually betray us. It's not just Delilah that betrays Samson. It's this adventurous spirit that keeps pulling him away from God's calling, from his own people, from his family, from his place that in the end leaves him betrayed. Yeah, that's so good. We often talk here on the show about, you know, the concept of FOMO and how, like for women specifically, you know, we feel the lure of, say, Instagram because we're seeing people broadcast their experiences and whatever. And then a lot of guys are like, oh, yeah, you know, that's not my jam or whatever. But, but you know, hop over to YouTube and see someone's amazing experiences, you know, in backcountry or whatever. And I think that's where we can get a little bit of a parallel there. So um, I think that's a good word. I love how you say um, within the book, uh, we have this written down here, you referenced adventures, not a sin. But then you say when it lacks discernment and costs commitment, it inevitably leads to betrayal and ruin. And I think that is so good. I mean, I think of, you know, ad- adventure being a good thing, experiences being a good thing, but what is the the time commitment you're putting into it or the time even frittering away and or money um, in pursuit of maybe the next uh, adrenaline rush, the next high and kind of ping ponging around. I see that as, you know, it seems to be such a great illustration of that. Yeah, well, when I think about the things that matter most in life, whether it is a meaningful relationship, true love, I look at the love my grandparents had who were together for decades, 
uh, being a parent and the relationship you have with the child, serving in a place, belonging to some place, those are all things, even careers, are all things that get better with time. And, and I worry that we've lost this idea of, of an acquired taste, things that over time we begin to appreciate and understand deeper. Our discernment grows through them, and we actually begin to enjoy more. And I think that's the thing Samson never gets around to. Every time he's constantly leaving, constantly abandoning the thing God is calling him to until he really has lost it altogether. And so I would encourage, have your adventure, but also make some long-term commitments to things and make sure that you're cultivating greater discernment through those commitments so that you can appreciate all that God is doing in them. Hmm. All right. Well, the next one, you're really going to ruffle some feathers because you talk about ambition. And, you know, this is where like the guys are like, okay, dude, Every person is telling us to be ambitious and to be, you know, to get off the couch and to, and here I love you use, um, you use a fair amount from Bonhoeffer. Um, we know his, his book, Life Together, you reference. And I just want to throw this out here. One of the things that you quote as Bonhoeffer saying is God hates visionary dreaming. Okay, you've just bucked against, Chase, every pastoral leadership seminar that's put out there by every church, everyone that's like, you know, dream your vision, put it on paper, do life mapping, do whatever, find your ministry calling or whatever. What is Bonhoeffer saying here? The first time I read that, I had the exact same experience you're describing too. Wait, this is everything I learned to do in seminary as a pastor. I'm supposed to have a vision, gather people to that vision, move the vision forward. But Bonhoeffer says something really specific. He doesn't just say God hates visionary dreaming. He says he does because it makes the dreamer proud. And the dreamer sets himself up as a judge against everyone else and begins to judge his brethren, begins to judge God, and ultimately becomes the judge and accuser of himself. What Bonhoeffer is saying is a vision is a kind of image we have of an ideal future. And that can be a good thing. God often gives us ambition and gives us vision. But if that vision becomes too important to us, if we begin to indulge it too much or to own it too much as our own, we have a tendency to start judging and measuring the world around us against that future vision. So we look at the life around us and say, well, we're not where we thought we would be. Whose fault is it? We start finding blame in all of the people around us. As pastors, we can be terrible about doing this. It's this congregation that's holding me back. Uh, Or we can turn that to God himself. God, you're not giving me what I need. You didn't give me the talents or the abilities. And then the final step of that is we can actually turn against ourselves. And we begin to think, I'm not who I need to be. I can't be who I need to be. I'll never be good enough to achieve this vision. And in all of those situations, it's that vision that's making us a judge of the reality around us. And oftentimes, I use the story of Moses to unpack this from the Old Testament. When God calls us to these difficult tasks, when he does give us ambition to pursue with our life, meaningful things to do, it's this sort of tightrope walk of both stepping into the work ahead of us but recognizing that ultimately we depend on God to see that work through. And Moses struggles with this throughout his life. At times he gets it right. At times he gets so frustrated with the uh, Israelites that instead of speaking to the rock as he's commanded, he strikes the rock with his staff and says, says to the people, listen, you rebels, must we produce water from this rock? You see where he begins to mistake himself for God and act out his own emotions as if they were God's. And that's the poison of ambition. Um, the way that I put it in the book is, Ambition is like a poison that if you are a wise and skilled doctor, you can actually administer as medicine to save a life. But if you come to it without wisdom, without knowledge, without discernment, you can actually take life or destroy life just as quickly with that same poison. Hmm. 
Yeah, wow. That's great. And and really it is, I, I think, you know, and you alluded to this already, talking about how it causes us sometimes in a very unhealthy way to look beyond the life that we already have. I mean, we're so busy focusing and obsessing about bettering ourselves or becoming some ideal that we're not sure where we got this ideal from or uh, figuring out, you know, how we need to self-actualize or how we need to grow and put up some metrics and whatever that we're not looking right where we are and we're not grateful, you know, for for what we already have. Well, this is the, the check that the Bible gives us against that ambition. And it's interesting, the very check that Moses is back to live out. Moses is forced to give up the promised land because of that disobedience. He's forced to sit down that great ambition and leave it unfinished in his life. He'll die there on Mount Nebo looking out at the promised land. And the Old Testament offers us the practice as Sabbath as a way of checking our ambition. Now, most people think of Sabbath the exact opposite way, right? If I take one day off a week, I'll be even more productive the other six days. It's like a life hack to get even more done. But I think the way Sabbath is supposed to be practiced is something like this. I accept that I will only achieve six-sevenths of what I'm capable of achieving, that there is a margin of my life that I will entrust to God that won't be used to produce more, to achieve more, to make more happen, but there will be a margin of my life that I will entrust to God for Him to do His work and to open my eyes to what He's doing so that I don't bear the entire weight of that ambition on my shoulders day in and day out. Hmm. All right, a couple more to tackle here. So I want to make sure we get this overview and then we're going to um, tell folks where to get the book. Um, the fourth one's integrity. I think we need to straight up get from you a definition of this from the get-go because I think it's kind of a moving target in our culture as to how people define this. Uh, you use David as the example. So tell us what integrity is um, and then the, the application that you're trying to move towards here. Sure, yeah. So I talk in this chapter about reputation. And using, uh, we're all in pursuit of integrity, which I define as, we get the word integrity from integer, a whole number. So there's no fraction, there's no missing pieces. We'll sometimes talk about the structural integrity of a building or a bridge, meaning that it's, it's what it appears to be. There aren't cracks in the foundation, there aren't split cables somewhere. Uh, the challenge for us, I think it's true as men, it's true for all of us, but particularly as men, We can get this idea that if I can succeed in one area of life, then it sort of excuses the rest of my life. So if I'm really successful in business, then, hey, if my personal life's a bit of a mess, oh, well, right? Or if I'm really good at church and faith, you know, then then if there's some parts of my life in private that aren't totally congruent with that, well, as long as I am publicly have this reputation or this public image, that's enough to get by. We begin to sort of compartmentalize our life. I use the story of David to unpack this one, and at times David gets this right. He lives with integrity, a kind of whole image of who he is. He takes off Saul's armor and fights Goliath as a shepherd. That's the truth of who he is. But there's other times where he gets this really wrong. I mean, after David's uh, sin with Bathsheba, he begins to manipulate and cover up this sin just to preserve his public image. And he actually becomes kind of blind to it. Even when the prophet Nathan points it out in his life, David doesn't really recognize his own story in a parable laid out before him. And so there's a real danger that the more we live into this public reputation, the more we live these divided lives, we actually begin to believe it. And we begin to sacrifice the structural integrity of our life. And we leave ourselves vulnerable to collapse, sometimes without being aware of it. 
So uh, I suggest that we practice a kind of lifestyle of confession. One of the things that always strikes me about David is we get the whole story. You know, David's in a position of power. He could have burned the books. He could have burned the record. I mean, politicians today spend millions to cover up their scandals and hire image consultants. But David leaves us not only the stories of his brokenness, but the Psalms, his own words. He's willing to inventory his whole life. So I think the right definition of integrity is not, I always do the right thing. But instead, uh, I'm willing to bear responsibility for both the good and the bad, for all and everything that I am as a man. Hmm. Wow. All right. And our last one we want to cover is apathy. Um, And I want to set it up. You actually uh, describe this as a serious problem. And I, I just want to say here to quote, you say, I know far more men who have lost the vitality of their faith to the obsession of their hobbies and the security of their recliners than to the grotesque sins of violence and lust. Okay, you got to explain that now, because now you're just getting personal with people. Well, I'm a pastor, so I mean, <laughs> I see this day in and day out. That yeah. The thing that so many men struggle with is just continuing, pressing forward, engaging the complexities of the world, because the world is complex. And the way we often want to respond to it is we want to retreat back to what we can control, even if that's just hobbies and recliners and our own home. Uh, I use the story of Abraham. Abraham is thought of as the father of faith, but there are moments in his life where he really finds himself struggling to, to live into faith in the midst of complexity. When he's still waiting for an heir to come, his wife Sarah comes with a plan about conceiving the heir through Hagar, their servant. He sort of passively goes along with it. When drama breaks out in his home and Sarah comes saying there's now conflict, he literally says to her, you deal with it, right? He can't even bring himself to engage the problems within his own home. And this tendency plays out in Abraham's life. It's the reason I believe God, uh, the end of chapter 21 of Genesis, seems like the end of Abraham's story. He plants a tree. It's like his retirement years. Isaac's finally there. He signs peace treaties. But you turn the page and you read, God tested Abraham. And it's in that context he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, He pulls Abraham back into this place of engaging faith, faith being alive. And that's the thing we desperately need for men right now. You look at the the disengagement of men from the home, whether it's the fatherhood epidemic that we're experiencing or just the absence of spiritual leadership in the home. You look at the way men are disengaging from education, the way they're disengaging from church. We continue to see a a, a female-male divide within participation in church, but also within the private practice of religion that men really are disengaging in some of the areas that we need them to be engaged and living by faith. And so I think this is one we all have to be on the lookout for. It's a lot easier to retreat back into your hobbies, but you've been designed to live by faith into the complexity, into the chaos, into the difficulties of this world. And we need men engaging by faith and Christ-like character those places. Yeah. I um, think of, you know, especially in an age now where we have so many conversations around uh, deconstructing one's faith or becoming progressive or abandoning certain values, going away to college, walking away from your faith. And I think what you're describing is probably a lot more accurate and pervasive, not that, you know, active deconstructions aren't happening, but this idea of just kind of letting it slide. And in fact, I think here I I found a 
portion of the book where you describe the greatest risk to your faith probably isn't you abandoning it, but that it would grow lifeless and still as you find ways to escape the complexity of what you currently face. And I think that is so it's the it's the frog in the kettle. It's the slow boil. It's the ignoring the signs. I, I think that's the culture that we're in and not just men, although you're saying, you know, the instinct is is strong there. But um, to sit back and to uh, let things slide. Yeah, it's certainly so much easier. You know, nobody is going to have a problem with you doing nothing. <laughs> it's when you are trying to do something difficult that people tend to begin to judge you. And scientists have this idea. It's one of the laws of thermodynamics, the idea of entropy, that given time, things just turn to chaos. They disorder themselves, right? So nothing nothing comes together. Things fall apart. And, and it's true of all of our work. We feel it. We sense it, particularly as we age, that things just get more complicated. Things require more work. Things feel harder. And so this tendency to just sort of give up on them is, I think, a a really strong one. But even though it's hard, this is the reason that by faith we press forward, right? Endurance that we're called to in Scripture again and again is in the midst of that complexity. By faith, we lean into it. Um, The last thing I'll sort of say on it is there's a line in Hebrews about Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. and It says that he believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And I've always loved that word, even. Uh, I think it's the way we're supposed to live by faith into this complexity. I may not understand how it's going to happen, but even if it is the most remote possibility, resurrection itself, still I'm going to trust God into the midst of this complexity, and I'm going to, by faith, step into it. Um, Abraham becomes a great example of that. Even though I think he naturally understood this tendency to apathy, he does lean into it, even by faith, if it's resurrection. Hmm. Well, folks, we've been talking with Pastor Chase Repligal. The book is The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And uh, we want to make this book available to you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So you know kind of how it works. We do this with a lot of our books that we offer, especially when we really want to recommend them. Uh, you just go to Boundless.org. You will see the book cover there. Um, click on it. You give a gift to Boundless for the work that we're doing as a community that supports you and loves you and roots for you. And we will send a copy of Chase's book as our thank you to you so you can make that uh, go ahead and make that happen. Uh, Chase, thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for your generosity. And if anybody's interested, I have an online assessment as well. So if you just want to learn a little bit more about the instincts, the five masculine instincts.com, you can take that assessment. It'll help you maybe figure out where you fit into this. And I hope the book is a blessing. I really appreciate your generosity of sharing it.
All right, folks. Well, we're going to open up our inbox as we finish out this week's show. And we have got another one of our fabulous counselors, Elaine Humphreys. Hey, Elaine. Hey. Always good to have you guys on the show. We so appreciate your expertise. All right. This question from a listener, I'm going to go ahead and read it and then give you a chance to answer. So um, our listener says, is it normal to get annoyed and angry at your boyfriend regularly before getting married? My boyfriend and I have been dating for two years and I notice I keep getting upset at him, sometimes because of our differences and other times for no apparent reason at all. It worries me because I've been told that things that annoy you a little before marriage are 10 times worse after getting married. Yeah, well, I can tell say that if it's a normal occurrence, it's really important to take a serious look at it and figure out where it's coming from. And generally, when we're triggered, there's something we're fearful of. So I would ask myself, what am I afraid of? Hmm. And um, really take a look at that. And fear generally, or anger generally comes from hurt, fear, and frustration. So Looking at that and trying to have a little more self-awareness and figuring out where that's coming from is really important. And I would say it's it's most important, of course, to go to God first. And having that deep relationship with Him is a reminder that He's the one that's there for us. He's not going to let us down. He loves us unconditionally. And we can ask for wisdom, direction, clarity, more self-awareness first from Him. And then I would definitely take some time to talk to a friend or mentor, somebody that knows me, because oftentimes we're triggered by things from our past. And again, you want to figure out where is this coming from? And talking to trusted people that know you is going to be really important, too. So and then finally, having a conversation with your boyfriend and being willing to be honest and own your part and reveal as much as you feel safe to reveal and ask him to do the same. And that will increase awareness as well. Yeah, that's such a good point. I like that you say own your part, because I think sometimes it's very easy. You know, I've heard this a lot from married couples who want to blame shift and say, well, you make me angry. Or if Mm -hmm. you weren't like this, I wouldn't be like this. But, you know, the question is, Is this like trouble she's just having with her boyfriend or is she just an angry person? And she might have to take a hard look at that and maybe do some work in that area personally before taking that into marriage. Absolutely, because in marriage, things do escalate generally. Mm -hmm. So um, really increasing that self-awareness and, you know, inviting God into that process, I think, is going to be really important. Yeah, such a good point. Well, folks, um, that is it for this week's show. Uh, Elaine, thank you so much for weighing in on that question. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to remind you all that as we finish out the year here, Boundless exists because of your support. And I know many of you regularly, whether it's with one of our gift of any amount offers on the show or whether it's just a regular gift that you give to Boundless, um, you are supporting the work we're doing here. But if you would love to give an end of year gift to us, and this is where you can kind of get that last last tax credit in at the end of the year, you'll get documentation of that. You can go to boundless.org. You will see our donate button up there. Just donate through that link. Uh, Your gift will go to um, Boundless will get credit through the Focus on the Family account for it to go to the work here uh, that we do at Boundless to help bring you great content for young adulthood in the areas of relationships, life stuff, and faith, and hopefully introduce some of your friends to it as well. So again, 
again, just go to Boundless.org. You can click on Donate. We would love to get an end-of-year gift uh, from you to help us out here, and uh, that would be a real blessing to us heading into the new year. So, okay, folks, I will see you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.